1: This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd.
2: Hello. Hello. How are you? Quite excited. Go on. As we record this, uh, and it will have happened by the time you listen to it, I'm, I, I know, but the Eurovision Song Contest is happening. Is that this weekend? Yeah, it is. And then, then I was thinking, do you know, very occasionally they'll get some huge star like Madonna, who has a new album to promote, or Justin Timberlake, and they will do so at the Eurovision Song Contest. Yeah. Is it too late for you to orchestrate some kind of appearance you could walk on holding a copy of your book? They asked me and I turned it down. I just thought,
3: you know, is that really what I want? You know, got washing my hair that
2: night. What about projecting uh, a picture of yourself onto Big Ben? like they did with Gail Porter all those years ago. These are all excellent ideas, and I'll
3: take them under advisement. Yeah, um, we, we've
2: all heard that a lot over the past few years on this podcast. So
3: I've been doing some book stuff this week, and actually it's really interesting. I, I, so the things I've done so far, I've done a Guardian interview, which will be out by the time this podcast comes out, um, How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, A Letter to My Younger Self for Big Issue and The Sunday Times Life in the Day, and uh, and also The Penguin podcast with Nihal Athanayka, And all of them in different ways, apart from so much The Guardian, Um, they've ended up sort of being quite, they're quite a lot about my childhood (laughs) and quite a lot about 2015, but not in a sort of bad way, actually, more in a sort of reflective way. Do you feel you're getting free therapy by doing book promotion? I mean, it's quite interesting. I think you've got a choice on these things, which is to either, you know, be kind of quite buttoned up, i.e ed to 2015 all to sort of let more of it hang out i suppose
2: but people like that
3: i've gone for the latter strategy yeah um i talked quite a lot about being an anxious person on the how to fail uh which obviously you know about and sort of why that was what it was about my childhood that sort of led to that quite a lot about 2015 and sort of what my reflections are on that and also sort of you know, why it was important to stay in politics and what that says about politics. And, and and Nihal actually asked me really good questions about sort of, you know, whether politics could accommodate big ideas, you know, whether compromise was sort of inevitable in it. I think that's quite a big element. So I think it's quite interesting. The, the, the process of doing these interviews is really, it's sort of not exactly what I expected. I sort of expected it to be, you've got to sort of cough up
2: the book, if you know what I mean. <laughs> It's transactional, though, isn't it? So if you go on a radio programme or you're interviewed by a newspaper, you're there to get people interested in the book, so hopefully they buy it. And the person who is hosting that show or the journalist who's writing that feature, they want to open you up to people and give their readers or their listeners a sense of who you are and what it's like to be in a room with you and what they might have Well, that was always
3: good. But, I mean, by the way, I'm not criticising any of the people who interviewed me because actually they did it in a very nice way, you know what I mean? I mean, it wasn't like they were not saying, they were saying we're not interested in the book. You know, it was more just, more of me has come out than I expected in a sort of odd, in a, in a, in a kind of, in a
2: way. As someone who's sort of agonised about that in the past, how, how does that feel? It's quite it's quite interesting because it's very countercultural for a politician,
3: is what yeah. I realise. It's sort of like everything from admitting weakness, admitting anxiety, a sort of degree of candor, personal candor, do you know what I mean? Yeah. It does sort of set things off in your mind, I think. Have you had any big breakthroughs? Well, let's see, but
2: talking about these things candidly is a bit of a breakthrough, isn't it? Definitely. Well, we're going to be keeping our listeners busy then. You're appearing on all these podcasts, uh, radio shows. You're not going to get jealous. Uh, li- a little bit. Should we remind our listeners of that uh, discount that you've sorted out for them? If you go on waterstones.com before the 2nd of June and you enter in the code cheerful at the checkout, you get 30% off the full price. And that's as a thank you to our Reasons to be Cheerful listeners. And uh, I, I look forward to more adventures in book publishing next week and more revelations should we talk about what we're talking about on the podcast well we're back on the buses for this episode Yes, this week we're talking about
3: buses, and actually, in a chapter I of, for the book where I talk about devolution and local government, I talk quite a lot about Dunkirk and its experiment in free buses. Now, here in the UK, back in March, Mayor of Greater Manchester, Andy Burnham, announced plans to bring Greater Manchester's buses under local control. That's the biggest change to buses in the UK since the 1980s. For more than three decades, buses have been deregulated outside London, leaving local leaders' with little power over routes, timetables, fares and tickets. Campaigners have long argued this is a barrier to building a high quality and affordable public transport system. We're exploring why the Greater Manchester decision is so significant and what we can learn from how buses are run elsewhere in Europe, including in Dunkirk. We're going to be talking to Andy Burnham about the changes to buses and his wider vision for public transport in Greater Manchester. King of the North. Exactly. Then we're talking to Pascal Robinson from the Better Buses for Greater Manchester campaign, who pushed for and campaigned for this decision and finally to transport expert ian taylor about what other countries can teach us about building a world-class system across the uk
2: the last time we did an episode on buses we actually got to go on the bus with our tape recorder sadly that's not an option available to us this day but that's a fond memory i enjoyed that it was in our youth wasn't? a honeymoon period our relative
3: youth yes um i did want to be a bus conductor at one point i loved the The machines on the london buses you know
2: yes well i'm sorry that you never realized that ambition but you've done all right considering well thanks a lot um what's your reason to be cheerful right listen to this do you remember me mentioning on the podcast a while ago that i had become obsessed with crumpets trumpets crumpets not trumpets
3: Oh, uh, right. Okay. Uh, Buttering
2: my own crumpet, not blowing my own trumpet. I do remember. Yeah, of course. I saw on social media this week that a Liverpool bakery has invented crumpet bread, which is thick slices of bread, but made like crumpet so the butter can drip into the holes. I was very excited by this and retweeted it. And then yesterday I was doing a work thing. A colleague of mine travelled from Liverpool. She'd seen this retweet and she went to the bakery and she brought me some crumpet bread. Was it, did it live up to expectations? Oh, yes, it's fantastic. I mean, you, you think human beings have developed so much in the, uh, in the millennia and especially in the digital age, we've made such leaps. And you think, well, how much further can we go? And then you see something like crumpet bread. And I think we're, we're just scratching the surface. We're just at the beginning. It's truly marvellous so very much my reason to be cheerful what's yours i mean i'm afraid you're going to now feel sort of bad because
3: mine's sort of much more sad serious and slightly sad um but it's sort of got a upside so i was realizing that um as we were recording uh this week that it's um 27 years today since my dad died and i suppose it relates back to sort of what i said earlier which is doing this book and doing the interviews for this book has rather made me sort of reflect on the good sides and the sort of more challenging sides of my upbringing and I suppose I kind of I'm just mentioning it partly because I sort of want to remember him uh, and today is an important day to remember him um, but also I sort of think you know he wouldn't agree with everything I've say in the book and so on but you know hopefully he'd be kind of
2: relatively proud of me having done this book and oh I, my god of course he would i mean imagine if if one of your sons ended up doing something like this and there is a sort of i don't think it's a monkey on my
3: back but i suppose being the son of somebody who is known for writing books maybe one of the reasons it's taken me quite a long time to write one is you sort of feel there is quite a big sort of legacy mm. issue I probably told you this, but I've got on my shelf a copy of his book, Parliamentary Socialism, published in nineteen sixty one. But I haven't just got a copy of his book, I've got Michael Foote's copy of his book. Because when I was Labour leader, somebody sent me this thing that they picked up in a in a in a jumble cell something. And it is absolutely extraordinary. Because here I am, I'm reading this. It says Michael Foote, um, nineteen sixty-one, a good book, but not to be swallowed whole. <laughs> and then various other things that he says anyway so it's quite wow. uh, so it's quite I, I honestly i have this on my shelf it's just quite a thing and the person that sent me this book i'm just so grateful to them that i have this duncan bruce uh, who sent it to me there's a story to this book it's a pre-release book sent to Michael Foote at the request of your father. Foote was asked by the publisher to write something, perhaps at the back page or cover about the book. Now you know what it's like to be asked to do a blurb. They did it in the 1960s. Yeah, but at least they used his. Yeah, well, Jeff did a blurb and it didn't, didn't end up on my book. Uh, well, they didn't actually use his. Uh, anyway, so it's got George Allen and Unwin, parliamentary searches and price 35 shillings. Wow. There was an internet discount as well, actually, for, <laughs> for listeners to his podcast.
2: You're
0: listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Geoff Lloyd.
3: Well, look, to start our conversation about buses and, and what we can learn about what's going on, I'm delighted to say that we are joined by my good friend, at uh, the Mayor of Greater Manchester, uh, sometimes known as the King of the North, uh, Andy Burnham. Thank you so much for joining us, Andy. Oh,
4: Ed, it's great to see you. Great to be with you as well, Jeff.
2: This this is great. This is like seeing members of a band back together again. It's the old band back together. It is the old band back together again. This is great.
3: I think I've aged more than him, actually. Andy, this is a thing that you've felt passionately about before you were mayor of Greater Manchester, but, but now you've got a chance to do something about it and you've You've done actually a brilliant video, which we'd recommend people watch, about some of the problems which we recorded just after you were re-elected as as mayor. Just before we get on to what you're doing, tell us about the problems of the buses in Greater Manchester that you found and why you felt the need to
4: act. Well, the first thing I'd say, Ed, is expensive. It can cost over £4 here for a single bus journey. And to be honest, that's the reality in large parts of England outside of London. So it's £1.55 in London um, and it's much more expensive than that here. And the question is, why should public transport be more expensive in some of the poorest parts of the country? That cannot possibly be, be right. And what we find here is people do end up staying very local. Their horizons become limited by the cost of public transport. And I keep saying the test I'm setting the government, we need a bus ticket in Harper Hay, Greater Manchester to cost the same as one in Harringay, London. and that's a test for levelling up.
2: Has the market gone mad as well? Because I remember the bus deregulation in Manchester and there was this real sort of like race to the bottom. You get all these different bus companies, different coloured buses and, and it'd be 10p to get into town.
4: Exactly. Um, Jeff. I remember that's, that. So
2: that's how it started and this is how it ends.
4: I, I used to go from Lee bus station to the Arndale when I was about 16. 10p it was, as you say. And it took about an hour and 40 minutes, but never mind that, because you didn't mind so much when you're young. And then, as you say, 1986, just chaos, a jumble of whatever. No one knew where uh, they were with it all. And prices went through the roof, uh, roots just getting cut left, right and centre. We've had 35 years of that now, and uh, the public have definitely voted for change. Tell
3: us then about the change that you're planning to bring, Andy, because in March you made the decision... To bring the buses back under public control. Explain to us what that actually means in practice and and, and and sort of how that
4: plan then unfolds. The simplest way of describing it, Ed, is for 35 years, the bus companies have decided where they go and what they charge. So you get that situation of Oxford Road, buses nose to tail, can't move for queues of buses. But then in a more isolated estate, nothing at all. Uh, so the simple change is we decide where buses go and we decide what buses charge, and this isn't just about buses actually because when you can set the fare structure, you can then integrate buses with MetroLink, our tram system, and then you can have that London-style principle across the system where people can catch a bus and a tram and only be one paid for as one journey. Whereas at the moment, if you are travelling on a bus and you get off and you get on a tram. You pay again as a new customer. So the cost of public transport just racks up here. And as I say, way more expensive than London. So, so look, you've been working on these plans for a number of
3: years. How difficult has it been to get to this stage? And, and sort of, you know, where where does it, when does it kind of come to fruition?
4: It's been a very long journey for Greater Manchester. Um, so... In the negotiations over devolution, Ed, um, George Osborne's big ask was he wanted a mayor for Greater Manchester. And the big ask from Greater Manchester was, we want the power to re regulate the buses. And basically, they did the devolution deal on that. You know, you take the mayor, uh, and if you do, I'll give you the power to re regulate the buses. The leaders of Greater Manchester are very fond of telling me that my only function in life is to re-regulate the buses because that's why they accepted a mayor of Greater Manchester. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I know what's required of me and we've worked very, very hard to get to this point.
3: And, and when is the sort of... T- so if you're a resident of Greater Manchester, what's the difference you're going to see and when will you see it? Or, or do you still have hoops to jump through with the companies and all of that?
4: Hoops to jump through, definitely. And there's a legal challenge, as I speak to you tonight, still looming over us. There's a judicial review being brought by the companies which is hard to justify given the democratic mandate uh, for the change. Uh, But if all goes to plan, Wigan and Bolton will be the first part of Greater Manchester to to experience re-regulated buses, and that will be on the ground in the early part of 2023.
3: Let me ask you about the funding issues. I mean, how much is this the system and how much of it is the funding question? Are you going to have the money to sort of meet people's maybe not people's full expectations but to, to re- have real improvement
4: so before the pandemic there was about 100 million pounds of public subsidy going into the bus system in greater Manchester, and our argument is that has not got maximum value for money because it's been in, going into a commercial system that doesn't go where people want it to go. And, you know, that that, that doesn't get the best return for that investment. So our argument is, even if you put nothing more into the system, you would still get a better service for the public from a franchise system than you will from a uh, commercial system of the kind we've got now.
3: And to be clear, Andy, it will still be private companies running the buses, but you'll be controlling the routes, the service, the fares
4: and so on. So, yes, that's right, Ed. It's public control rather than public ownership, because the Bus Services Act ruled out public ownership. We would have wanted it. And in fact, I tried to move an amendment to that that bill, but the government wouldn't have it at the time. But I think there will come a moment, won't there, where bus companies won't step forward to run services in certain areas. And I think they'll have to open up, I believe, to to public ownership or not-for-profit ownership.
2: If you take funding out of it, how do your powers on this compare to Sadiq Khan's in London?
4: It's very much based on the London model, Jeff, and London never had what we had. You know, their buses were never deregulated, so London maintained a regulated system. I think there is now a general recognition that the free for all in transport just does not work whatsoever, and um, you know, there's a line been drawn under, under that, and not a moment too soon.
2: And a promotion for Chris Boardman then, who's been doing great work on cycling. Um, t- tell us about the sort of wider vision for public transport in Greater Manchester and the B Network.
4: The B Network began as a cycling and walking network that Chris Boardman was overseeing because we want walking and cycling to be the, the first choice, the natural choice for people's first mile or their last mile of their journey. And then they get on a reformed, re-regulated bus and then on a tram and it's all you know, much more convenient. But, but we recognise that Chris has brought some real innovative thinking to to transport more broadly, and we've given him this broader role. If you give the 2.8 million people of Greater Manchester a London-style public transport system with London-level fares, and what I mean by that is not just £1.55 to catch a bus, but also a daily cap, no matter how many buses or trams you take, that is levelling up, in my view. That is a proper plan to level up, because then, all of the people who live here will be able to connect to training, to jobs, to opportunity.
2: And the, the buses aren't going to be orange again, though. I was disappointed to hear that we're not going back to the orange colour scheme. You're
4: very old school, Jeff. We used to have a thing called Clipper Card. You'll want that as well, won't you? Where you used to have to put this <laughs> <laughs> paper ticket in the uh, the, the system. Um, they're going to be yellow and black. The B network is going to be the whole of the transport system. And we're, we're calling it that because obviously the bee is the symbol that is very visible across all of Greater Manchester, the worker bee, you know, a city region based on cooperation and teamwork. Um, but it is very much a symbol of saying now the people are in charge of this system.
2: Talk to us about our pass. Um, just more, more generally, you t- talked about uh, young people there in terms of the uh, bee network. But
4: just, just tell us what our pass has meant for young people. So our pass is free bus travel for 16 to 18s. And and Ed, you will remember this very, very well because you were leader, I was your shadow education secretary when the coalition did the cruelest thing of all when they took away the education maintenance allowance. Exactly, yeah. That was a lifeline to kids in Greater Manchester and it just gave them that ability to go to the college they really wanted to go to as to the one that was most local to them. It gave them a bit of money to buy extra sports equipment, you know, what, whatever. And it was a killer blow, actually, when that was taken away. So I had it in my head, and I was, I was arguing this, as Shadow Education Secretary for Ed at the time, that if there was a fear about giving people a grant, well, why not convert it into a free bus pass? Because then you're giving people a, you know, a, a, a benefit, but you're obviously controlling what it's, where the money's going. And I've long had it in my heart that that's what we needed to do. And when I became mayor, I said, right, we're doing it. And we have done it. And it's not just bus travel, Jeff. It actually is linked to free entry to sport, to music, to galleries, to training, all kinds of things. It's a brilliant scheme, actually. I'm really, really proud of it. There was one kid who was at an RPAS celebration event who was from Tameside. And I asked him the question, I sort of had the microphone, and said, well, what's RPAS meant for you? He says, oh, i I finally visited the nine other boroughs of Greater Manchester. I'd never been to Oldham before, and I went to Oldham on the bus. But it is expensive for us.
3: How much does it cost you, Andy?
4: It's around about £15 million a year, um, which is a big expense, but we've done it because I was determined, you know, living through that era as we did in the early days of your leadership, where young people were very clearly made the target for cuts, weren't they, in the early days of the coalition... I've been saying that you can't build a strong society on that basis. And devolution is about the ability to do things differently. I think the result we got at the election just now is linked to the fact that lots of young people voted and also their parents voted, who've seen the benefit in their own pockets from having a free bus pass for teenagers.
3: We should say you, you won, uh, for those who don't know, we, you won re-election overwhelmingly. I think you won every ward um, in Greater
4: Manchester. Is that right? Excuse the modesty here, but it was, it was actually the largest majority ever in british political history there you go Andy. i, hope I that's
3: mean, on your email signature your twitter bio don't hold back andy you're just you're just too bashful now look at this, at this point i sort of want to make a confession because this is a sort of very friendly um uh forum uh and that is that you talk to me before you decide to become get mayor of greater man just stand for the Labour nomination for mayor of Greater Manchester and you sort of said to me you let me into your confidence and said you were thinking about doing this and I didn't tell you not to do it but but I did say look are you sure you're going to have the powers to actually make a difference are you sure that given how centralised power is at Westminster you're going to have the powers to the extent that I doubted your decision I was wrong and you were right but but sort of Talk to us about just your experience of the last four years, how it compares to the experience at Westminster, and then it'd be good to talk a little bit about what other powers we should be devolving.
4: No, I remember that conversation very well. Uh, You helped me, actually. You made me just pause. Um, And I think I just about have enough to make it work and make some change happen. And I've talked about some of the change I have made happen. But I think the devolution deals elsewhere I would struggle a bit more with. So, you know, you were right to maybe confront that question. But there is something beyond the formal powers, Ed, which is the convening power, Um, you know, the voice, the the ability to pull people together, to get people to face in the same direction. It's energising in the... I'll I'll be honest, and I'm not saying there's any sort of kind of... I, I know people might think I'm always having a go at Westminster, but actually it's just a better way of doing politics you know, kind of building from the bottom up with people.
3: And obviously you um, got a lot of national attention by standing up to the government during at the height of the Covid crisis, and we're obviously not out of the Covid crisis. What lessons do you learn from Covid about the way we're governed? You've heard me
4: say before that the country is London-centric, but it is. They tried to do something to us that they wouldn't dare to have do to London. Uh, and in fact they reversed it the, min- the minute london went into tier 2 immediately the checkbook was open and that proved it proved the point you know they would never shut down pubs and betting shops and bingo halls in london and give people 2 thirds, 67% of their wages they just wouldn't have done it but they did try and do it to to us but it also said something about devolution they seemingly want a form of devolution where everyone has to sort of bow down to the government devolution only works if there's a sort of an ability to speak up and have a, a partnership, if you like, where perspectives are taken into account. Devolution, where it's based on going to them on bended knee, you know, sort of tugging your forelock, is not devolution at all, in my view.
3: Last question from me, Andy. Uh, you you had the immense privilege of being Shadow Health Secretary under, uh, well, Shadow Education Secretary, and then Shadow Health Secretary under me. Uh, I, I say that with some sort of irony, in a way. One thing that really strikes me is how much you're enjoying yourself, I think. And I mean that in a good way. I don't just mean because you've had this stonking majority, the greatest in British political history, according to some sources. <laughs> you have a sort of freedom and, a, and an enjoyment of it as I see you going about your business.
4: Well, so do you when I see you in the Commons at the moment. I love well, maybe. maybe. Your, you do. You have a fantastic energy in your... Anyway, but, I, but I, you're correct to, to see uh, that that in me. Uh, I didn't, you know... I, you know, you remember from working with me. I, I kind of have, you know, um, strong impulses about about things and certain, you know, feelings about the way the world should be. And you know, I've always been rooted in the northwest, as you know. I'm, in, and my heart has always been, you know, here. And I, I guess one of the things that frustrated me about Westminster was just kind of working all the while with people who, not you, not you, but others in government who just didn't understand this place and and what it's all about and what people here need. So. There's just something about coming from the bottom up with people you know, people you kind of, you know, you, you, you identify with, and then speaking for them. It's it is quite an empowering thing, and it just allows you to kind of remember what politics is all about somehow.
3: Well, look, it's been an absolute pleasure um, to talk to you. It's fascinating to hear what you're doing on the buses and and other things. That Andy Burnham, thank you so much for 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 joining us. And just to underline you've got the largest majority in British political history, according, according to some sources.
4: I won't I mention it ever again, Ed, but now that you know that, I, I trust that you will promote that fact for me.
2: Well, we're going to speak now to Pascal Robinson, who returns the podcast uh, but uh, with a slightly different hat on because Pascal ran the Better Buses for Greater Manchester campaign. Hello.
0: Hello, hi, thanks for having me.
2: Well, I mean, I've not lived in Manchester for over twenty years and given that bus wars were a thing back then and that was a talking point back then how how bad has it got?
0: yeah they're they're pretty awful. About 40 different bus companies run our buses in Greater Manchester. Uh, Tickets are often a single journey, can be over £5. Um,
2: I couldn't believe it. I, I, I mean, firstly, just working out the fare, these fares are pretty unfathomable. But, yeah, it's so expensive.
0: It's so expensive and it's extremely complicated as well. So you'll often have, maybe you've worked out one route to get to a particular place, maybe you buy a return, but the same bus company isn't even running that bus later in the day or that evening, so you have to buy another ticket. It, of course, doesn't link up with the tram. So sometimes you're spending up to £17 a day.
2: And we've just heard from Andy Burnham about his decision to bring buses back under public control. What are the biggest other other biggest frustrations that people have with the system at the moment and what will this decision do to address those problems
0: the network is very unstable so it changes up to five times a year so it's very hard to know from month to month whether your route will be running how long it will be running for and whether it will still be there in six months time uh the lack of information is a big problem for people so it's very again because um it's not a joined up network. There are different routes run by different companies. You can't predict how much your journey is going to cost because of course, each bus company has their own kind of 50 to a hundred tickets. There are no buses at three or 4am and lots of people need to get buses at three or 4am. I often hear um, stories of cleaners who have to walk up to five miles at 3am to get to a place where there is a bus that will get them to their shift Um a councillor once told me a story of having to walk to his job at Manchester Airport um, because there was no bus that got him there. Um, there are stories of people who live on council estates in Greater Manchester who, again, there is no bus after 3pm that gets them home. The system is is an absolute mess. It's an absolute joke. Talk to us about the
3: nature of the campaign. How did you go about building the support for change and what was your experience of the campaign?
0: So uh, the campaign um, started um, back in 2018 and what I tried to do from the off was to establish a really broad coalition and so we had unions involved, cycling groups, um, older people's networks, um, anti-poverty campaigners, tenants unions, community groups, big and small And what we tried to do was to kind of bring together this broad coalition and, of course, put pressure on uh, the decision maker, the target. And so we brought together passengers from all over Greater Manchester. And that's something I feel very proud of is that passengers were a key part of deciding what our plans were and uh, and, of course, making those plans happen. But we we didn't just do that. We kind of kept up. The pressure all the time. And we tried to be very creative in our actions as well. When the leaders took uh, public controller buses to the next stage, we turned up at one of their meetings and gave them thank you cards. And I think they were a bit bemused by these people um, turning up. Um, We also had Better Buses badge-making sessions in museums so people could find out about the campaign. Um, We had a Better Buses musical explaining the history of buses in Greater Manchester with people on roller skates. Um, We built a big bus and took it to Andy Burnham's office. You know, we really tried always to think creatively about how to reach our target.
3: And, Pascal, what would you now like to see... Uh, We've talked a lot about Greater Manchester. What do you want to see happen in other regions?
0: We would love to see uh, all combined authority mayors follow in this footstep. But of course, we'd like to see all local leaders follow in Andy Burnham's footsteps. Tracy Braben is talking about bringing buses into public control, but also smaller local authorities can do this too we hugely care about our buses and so politicians and leaders need to follow in Andy Burnham's footsteps and they need to be even bolder we need to be talking about public ownership of buses about free buses um there's there's so much more to be done and
3: now one of the things that our listeners often ask is how they can get involved they they like the sound of this that, that but you know how can they get involved in this case in campaigning for better buses in their own area so so you know maybe give, give them a little bit of a guide as to what they can do
2: write a musical
0: write a musical so first step write a musical musical learn how to roller skate um so we we um know through our campaigning of a few different campaigns that are maybe um, a bit harder to find so people can email me um at pascal at weownit.org.uk or they can reach out to we own it on various social media um However, there are other campaigns that are doing a brilliant job too. There's Get Glasgow Moving, um, there's Better Buses for West Yorkshire, Better Buses for South Yorkshire. And then last but definitely not least is ACORN. ACORN have done lots of brilliant campaigning for Better Buses. Well, look,
3: Pascal, it's always inspiring uh, to speak to you. Um, I think what's great about this example is it shows that change can happen uh, and that people don't have to feel hopeless or powerless um obviously the better buses for greater manchester campaign was a big part of that so thanks so much for joining us
0: thanks so much for having me thanks for your kind words it's that time of the year your vacation is coming up you can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze relax and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals
1: on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
3: So to talk further about the wider lessons in terms of uh, bus transportation, I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Ian Taylor, who is Director of Transport for Quality of Life, a transport think tank campaign group and consultancy. Ian, thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, Ian, let's start by by saying that we've heard a bit about the problem about a deregulated free-for-all. What, why, in your view, is it a barrier to building a world-class bus system?
1: Well, in my experience, if you talk to most people, they still think that their councils decide how buses will be run and provide the funding for that. Uh, Councils do still put money into some bus services but they lost the ability to decide what the bus network should look like locally right back in 1985 and what happened then was that the powers to design the bus network that would be in the best public interest were all swept away. London survived and kept a system that was much more like the European system and kept on being regulated but what happened was that after that The bus companies, the private bus companies that um, ran the system, naturally cherry-picked the best routes and neglected the rest. How unusual is the UK system of bus deregulation? It's close to unique, really. Um, No other country in the world has been so stupid as to do (laughs) something which is... What we have done. If you go to other countries of the world, particularly um, in north of Europe, but equally if you go to North America, uh, you'll find that people take it for granted that they're going to have to support their public transport system financially, and that, it, that the market isn't going to provide what is in the best interest of the broader public. And of course... The, 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 the situation is that buses actually carry twice as many journeys as trains. They're particularly used by people who are poorer or who are older. Um, they, they, they are the most accessible form of transport for disabled people. Um, but they didn't matter to Margaret Thatcher, who famously said, you know, if you're a man over 40 on a bus, then you're a failure.
3: Now, did she really say that? Yeah,
2: I, th- I thought that was apocryphal.
3: Uh, Ian, we, might, we think this might be apocryphal that she said that. Maybe that was her attitude, but we're not sure she actually said that.
1: Um, I agree that it's been challenged whether that has been said or not, and I've never managed to get quite to the bottom of it. But right, so It okay. appears to be, as you say, it appears to be um, her attitude. No smoke without fire. certainly the effects of what she did would seem to indicate that it might have been true the thing that i've noticed over the years though is that at local authority level and people who really know who use buses they really care and although local authorities have been hollowed out by austerity i remember dealing with officers who would move heaven and earth to try to get a service that would get somebody to work from some little village and um these people have largely vanished from local authorities, but there's still a world out there of people who do care because they understand that if you change a bus route, let alone take it away, it's a life-changing decision for people. They may lose their job. They may not be able to get to work anymore. It is
3: really interesting, isn't it, Ian, because the focus of lots of public debate is on train travel and, you know, train travel is really important. But the, but the sort of relative importance in the public debate of buses compared to trains is it, buses have been much, much more neglected as an issue, haven't they? And whereas, actually, I think I'm right in saying the majority of public transport journeys are on buses, not trains, correct?
1: Correct. More than twice as many journeys are made on buses uh, as on trains. And um, they, they have been a casualty of the fact that it's not just the apocryphal quote from Margaret Thatcher, but by and large, better off people use trains, but use buses less, except in London. Trains are the backbone of any public transport system. But the thing that you see in Europe is how they link buses into their train network to get the maximum reach of their railway. And if you look at other countries, they have an integrated system which necessitates having regulation of your buses. And for example, if you want to do what the French have done to create a whole renaissance of trams, you have to do that in a, uh, in a regulated regime. Because otherwise, if you invest in trams, and this happens in Nottingham, the private bus companies will run against it. It's more profitable for them to run in parallel right into the centre of your city, undermining the business case for your tram, taking the patronage off it, clogging up your roads, causing congestion, rather than feeding into it.
3: You've you've already hinted at this or uh, so far, Ian, but just let's now expand on it. What can we learn from other countries about how you build an affordable and comprehensive system? Germany, Switzerland, I'm interested in the dunkirk example where they've made bus services free um to, to, you know g- g- kind of you know make our mouths water with the kind of sense about you know where we could where how what our bus services could look like if we were willing to have the sort of resources and uh and commitment to it we
1: have lost the vision that is taken for granted in many european places that you should have a public transport system, which is almost part of the sort of richness of life, part of the planning of your city. I, I, if you, we have some of this in London, actually. Well, let's let's be fair to Britain first of all, that where it wasn't deregulated, we still have a world class public transport system in London. The European cities that one looks at um, that have really good public transport, what they do is they regulate all of it, and they make sure that the system goes together. And it gives them the ability to design the whole system so that it maximizes the public service. So, for example, we use the example of a little place in um, Zurich, Canton. Canton. The Swiss public transport system is probably the world-leading example. But this is a small place, 500 people. In fact, in most of Switzerland, if you're a small village of over 300 people, you are in law entitled for bus service every hour. In fact, Bergamicha, which is in the middle of nowhere, it has a service every half an hour from half five in the morning until midnight. Every day of the year, including weekends and bank holidays. In Britain, we don't have bus services in most rural places on Sundays or in the evenings. It's a completely different world. If you're in Switzerland, what can you do? You will probably buy a public transport season that covers not just your local buses or your your train journey to work. It covers every bit of public transport in Switzerland, and it's worth buying that. I haven't yet come to the business of free public transport. And,
2: of course, it sounds, doesn't it, absolutely mad. But loads of places have, have done it. This isn't kind of one cranky idea in one town that's about to go bankrupt. There are lots of places that have implemented this. they are doing it. T- tell us about it. There's
1: 100 plus places um, around the world that are doing free public transport. You could go to a whole country now that's got free public transport. Luxembourg decided earlier... In 2020, it would have completely free public transport. Um, there's the capital of Estonia, Tallinn, a city of some 400,000 people that has gone for public transport. They did it, arguably, because it was going to make them money, because they could attract more residents. Dunkirk is a fascinating example, city of about 200,000 people. They looked at this and thought, if we invest in free buses, this is going to be economically good. It's going to be part of our plan for economic regeneration. And the reason they did that is partly because uh, they realised that there's half a, half a million euros every year that are fleeing their local economy, they're draining out into the pockets of multinationals just as, fueled, as fuel payments. And they said, well, if we put money into free buses, these buses will, will be used by the people that are, are paying these, these fuel uh, the, these fuel charges, if we put the money into the buses, they will spend this money in the local economy and it will keep the money in the local economy. It's, there are 30 odd places in the United States, the supposed world centre of capitalism, which actually have free buses. As I said, it seems to be a particularly polarised debate in the UK. Um, if, if you look, even as I said, to America, they go even further and as in Europe, they take it as the norm that they would choose to actually not just, not just have command of the public transport system but since they're specifying the services they'd say well we should actually operate it without a profit loss and take it into the into public ownership And actually if you go to if you go to Dallas in Texas, Dallas area rapid Transit system is wait for it publicly owned fully publicly owned and operated within the public sector.
2: And is that where you think we should go? We should, we should get back to a situation where local authorities are, are allowed to set up municipal bus companies?
1: Absolutely. Uh, the, the, the problem with trying to design things that work well on the ground is if, the, if you're bound up by contract culture, uh, you, you, you get into a very complicated set of circumstances. But there's also the problem that, that, that you do lose a profit a profit margin. Now one of one of the, the things that you gain if you own the, the bus companies is you, you, you retain those dividends, so for example, many places in the uk have been seeing decline in bus services. Reading owns its bus company it 's been seeing um, a rise in bus, in bus patronage and an improvement in bus services as well.
3: Would it be a different experience being in the bus having taken the bus in Reading than say Doncaster?
1: Uh, the biggest difference wouldn't be in the bus itself so much the biggest difference would be that you notice that they have actually they've managed to run their buses into the evenings and they even have uh, buses running through the night they have night buses in Reading which for a town of that size as well Doncaster's not that different actually I bet you don't have many night buses running through Doncaster no we don't comprehensive network in Reading that's so interesting
3: and we have a thing on the podcast called the Jeffocracy and I've already got images of the Jeff bus, presumably that's what you'd call it, Jeff.
2: Would it be like a party bus? It'd be like the magical mystery tour bus or the Wenger bus.
3: Would all the buses be called Jeff buses?
2: Or what, do you I think, think so. Or, or would they have Why Are you angling on? for an Ed bus?
3: No, no. I, would they would they all have your photo on or sort of face probably on the on the headlights. Your 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 face, yeah. yeah. On the headlights. Yeah. Okay. I mean if you were the sort of minister for for Jeff Buses in the Jeffocracy, Ian, what's what would you and Jeff Jeff would basically, you'd you do what Ian told you, wouldn't you, Jeff, yes, more or less? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, what would you tell him, Ian?
1: I would get you to re regulate buses right across the country, not leave it to local authorities that don't have the resource to do it. You'd come in as the, in a, the best sense, a big brother that would look after the little brother and, and go in and say, look, you, you're going to get your buses re regulated. And if there was one place that you could
3: you've sort of given a hint of this already, but if there's one place that you could transplant into the UK and you'd say they've got, they've got it right on buses, would it be the Switzerland example?
1: It would be. But you could take a leaf out of the, some of the Germans' books as well as a, a locality called Nordhesse. And the big place in that is, well, it's only 100,000, is Cassel. But they've got a lovely slogan. Their slogan is, every village, every hour. Well, look,
3: Ian Taylor, Director of Transport for Quality of Life, uh, you've given us a vision of what the um, sunny uplands of the Jeffocracy could
2: look like when it comes to Jeff bus. Thank you so much. Those sunny uplands are very reachable by bus with, with frequency. I can see your, your
3: face and then mm. every village every hour underneath. Yeah. That might be maybe, that might might make people think that you were going to be in every village at every hour. <laughs> but we could work on the sort of exact yeah. you know, nature of the of the of the of the artwork, don't you think? Yes.
2: Well, uh what did you think? Well, firstly, the idea that you can campaign through the medium of musical theater is a revelation to me. I feel extremely excited by that. Um, what do you think we should be doing through the medium of musical theatre? What should we be campaigning for through the I I just think we should do every everything. Maybe
3: we should do a make your own sandwich shop operetta.
2: A light opera. This is yeah uh, this
3: this is a good idea. I could like I could like, you know, bring on a sort of bacon sandwich prop,
2: you know. Mm-hmm. I don't am be... not sure that roller skates would be a good idea for either of us, really. <laughs> roller skates and a bacon sandwich. <laughs> I think I mean I think it's got I think it's got bad
3: sort of situation all over it, hasn't it? Very uh, Frank Spencer. Yeah, exactly. Exactly.
2: Yeah. I would not I would not be good on roller skates. I um, I remember thinking this the last time we talked about buses and I was struck by it even more today. So you've got these private bus companies and obviously their motive is profit and it just makes so much more sense that it should be in public control because not because the the profit motive or the way you're thinking about that is economic benefit and that's not something that is in your next quarterly results to your shareholders economic benefit can be difficult to quantify and can take years and years but that surely has to be the way you think about public transport and buses and of course the the other side to this is the the climate factor as well and getting people off cars and to do that you need a really good bus network. Yeah,
3: I, I think you're you're really sort of right about this and it I suppose it's, it was really three different, very striking conversations. I suppose one about the grassroots movement that helped make this happen. Secondly from Pascal, secondly sort of, you know, just Andy's point about you know what the bus services are outside London um and and you know what he found and 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 why it was such a such a demand of people and then Ian's point i suppose about how uniquely sort of rubbish we are in terms of the way we do buses you know and it's also that you know what was he did he say i think you know twice as many journeys by buses by on buses as trains but think how it's a sort of poor i mean i'm not saying our train service is any good either but think how sort of it's a poor relation
2: when it comes to public debate the bus services i know but we touched on this last time as well it's the people who use trains versus the people who use buses and how much of a voice they have in comparison but but also you know lots of people on this
3: podcast say to us you know what can we do and hopefully we've given people a sense of the kind of campaigns they could run like pascal but also you know, can things get better well yes they they
2: can Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, we'd love to hear from you if you've got thoughts on buses, transforming the buses, what you've heard in this episode. Uh, maybe Pascal has inspired you to stage a roller skating Starlight Express style musical to, uh, to bring your buses under public control. Uh, let us know what you think as well as any ideas you have uh, for future podcasts or just thoughts you have generally.
3: Also, the branding of the buses in the Jeffocracy. You know, yes. that, that's, always, that's important. Isn't yeah, it? yeah, yeah. We've got, a, got you're a always, to. You're, in, you're interested in the bra- branding? Maybe we could give them comedy moustaches as well. Are you saying my moustache is a comedy <laughs> moustache, Ed? No, I'm saying your moustache is fantastic. Right. But it, on a bus, it would be obviously
2: amusing. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm there for it. Yeah, okay. Uh, anyway, do so through the website. It's cheerfulpodcast.com. Now, we received this email from Simon Kelly. The subject line is Ed's opera character just one cornetto Uh, he says your efforts to ascribe an opera character to ed in the last reason to be cheerful raised a smile your version of O Sole mio or as you put it just one cornetto now back in 1997 just one cornetto (laughs) you're very good simon continues i moved to vienna to live with my viennese girlfriend and since my wife of many years Vienna is sometimes considered the home of classical music, and indeed, my wife spent five years at the Munich Music University in the city, studying classical guitar. This meant she had stroke has pretty good knowledge of classical music and opera. At this time, my knowledge was more or less limited to Ravel's Bolero, or uh, largely because I'd seen the film Ten Starring Dudley Moore and Bo Derrick. And so in the early days, she'd often play me various classical pieces, including opera. Most of the time, I had no idea about the individual piece or the composer. But interestingly, I could often recognise the music. Carmina Barana by Karl R. Orff. Now, I know this one. This is a... Ha, 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 ha. Um, he says, nope, throwback aftershave. Yes, it was the old... Was it Old Spice that I Oh, God, I don't know. Jeff. I think it, it was... Um, uh, Adagio of Spartacus uh, And I'm struggling with this Phrygia From the ballet Spartacus There's quite a uh, lot of Constants in a row yeah. aren't there um, Nope the theme from the An, An Eden line the Overture from Mozart's Marriage of Figaro? Nope. The opening credits for trading places starring Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd. Or my favourite, Air On a G String by Johann Sebastian Bach. No, Hamlet, The Mild Cigar. Yes, there was a I do feel there was a lot more classical music in adverts and T V themes when we were younger. Um, he says, I could go on, but a possible subject instead. Ah. Inspired your by your reasons to be yeah. Swedish and reasons to be Finnish episodes, what about reasons to be Viennese? Well, to which we would say, mm. Simon, you've got to catch up. We went yeah. to Vienna. We met with we Jürgen Czernohorski. Yeah, yeah. Uh, ca- we talked a lot about housing in Vienna, didn't we? Yes, we did. Also in my book. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it does sound like there's a lot more, though. It's consistently top global life quality rankings. Well, maybe Vienna's somewhere we should revisit because we actually went there, which was exciting. Simon also adds P.S. opera character for Ed. It has to be Papagino from Mozart's The Magic Flute. Is that good news? I don't know, you see. I'm such an ignoramus with this stuff, really. Me, me too. I mean, it sounds like a name of a sort of,
3: you know, American pizza joint, Papagino's. But anyway. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, are you going to go to Papagino's? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think opera is the moment once Philistinism just sort of absolutely is exposed. Do you know what I mean? Mm. This one comes from Kay Carson, and it's subject is Michael Lewis episode. You're going to like this, particularly the PS. Dear Jeff and Ed, I've listened to all your podcasts. I look forward to them every Monday. Good so far. I listen while walking with my dog, Maya, and I listen because every episode reminds me of what Michael Lewis chose today as his reason to be cheerful. His country and ours is full of incredibly intelligent, insightful, and wise people who have a heart for service and for the betterment of our communities. I have despaired of a government policy since 2010, and of my own impotence. But it is listening to your conversation with your guests that makes me pull myself up, carry on, because none of you are giving up. And then, even better from your point of view. P.S. Much as I like talking politics, brackets, Bransonman, your interview with Michael Lewis was much more fun.
2: Well, well done. More fun than talking politics. We can we can use that on the uh, on the posters. You're pleased about that. Joel has just sent, by the way, you were right, your instincts were right, he's sent a screen grab of an American pizza delivery website called Papaginos. Well, you see? $10.99 for a cheese pizza deal. I do I, I do love an American pizza, Jeff. I don't know about you. Don't you? See, that, I think that, that might be revealing your uh, philistinism. Also, Joel, Joel says in, uh, he's, he's managed to do a bit of Googling. In Mozart's opera, The Magic Flute, Papagino accompanies the hero of our tale, Tamino, uh, as they attempt to free Pamina, daughter of the Queen of the Night, from the clutches of the high priest, Sarastro. So I'm Papagino. Yeah. You're Tamino, yeah? Yeah. And I would definitely eat a pizza from somewhere called Sarastro. <laughs> Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast.
3: Whoa. Here
2: we are in the outro. So what's the weekend hold in store for you? Well, I have my in-laws coming to stay from the States. It's the first time we've seen them. Quarantining with Lynn Barron. Yes, they are here but they are quarantining for the duration of their stay. They're just going to be indoors with us the whole time. So we'll see, we'll see how that goes. I'm sure it'll go well. We it would make compelling reality television, I think.
3: And how about you? But I'll be doing some cold water swimming, although the sort of the weather is not propitious, is it? I mean, mind you, the temperature's gone up to 15 degrees in the water, so it's kind of balmy. Does it matter to you if you're swimming in drizzle? Yeah, the drizzle is a bit. It, it, honestly, the
2: drizzle is a little bit off-putting. But, but why would really that matter? Now I'm thinking, why should that matter if you're mm. 85% wet anyway? Well, that's true actually. It'll be soon time to get rid of the gloves and uh, and
3: and and socks. Big moment, big mo. I'd like to thank our guests
2: Andy Burnham, Pascal Robinson, and Ian Taylor. Emma Caution produces our podcast, All the Research and the Excellent Guests. And uh, if we ever sound like we know what we're talking about, it was all down to Joel Pierce. uh, Who Ian Taylor knew as a child. He did. Uh, Joel has backup from Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. We also salute and say hello to our friends at Left Foot Forward. (laughs) Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made the eye dance. And our artwork was designed by Henry Cole. He's been Pappagino. He's been mushrooms with extra pepperoni. (laughs) And these have been...
3: Reasons to be cheerful.
0: When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do.